First Peter chapter 2. As we talked last week, Peter writing to us, the theme of his book is that you, as a follower of Jesus, you are in this world, but you're not of the world. You're passing through this world as a pilgrim, as a traveler, as a journeyer, a sojourner. In the world, not of the world, we're just passing through. And the difficult thing is you are uh, in the world as a foreigner by faith is sometimes people don't treat those uh, different from them very well. In fact, as Peter writes these letters, put yourself in the situation of the first hearers, those Christians scattered in those five Roman provinces on the north shore of the modern nation of Turkey, those that uh, were uh, on the Black Sea in the north. The Christians there were experiencing for the first time in the history of the church, which albeit had only been about 30 years since Pentecost, they were experiencing the first large-scale systematic persecution. Because even last week as we spoke of uh, being good citizens, honor, honor the king, fear God, honor the king, the king, the emperor at that point was Nero himself. Nero, who following the fire in Romans 64 AD, sought to scapegoat the Christians, as causing the fire, a fire that burned the majority of the city of Rome to the ground. Almost 80% of the people of Rome were homeless, and they were looking for someone to blame. Very likely, Nero himself, who left the city before the fire, unlike the popular image that Nero fiddled while Rome burned, he made sure he was out of town when the fire happened, because very likely the emperor himself ordered the fire started strategically because he wanted a whole neighborhood burned down to build the largest, most palatial palace any king had ever had. Well, the fire got out of hand, let's put it mildly. And so Nero began to persecute Christians. Well, as we said last week, Christians were an easy target because there was so much misunderstanding about who we are. Because we share together the cup and the bread, which reminds us of the body and the blood of Jesus given for our salvation. Rumor went around that Christians had secret meals where we were cannibals. We were not only cannibals, but we were atheists because we didn't worship the Roman and the Greek gods. Not only were we cannibals and atheists, but we were disloyal to Rome and the community itself because we would not burn incense to, to the divine Caesar. Beginning back with the Emperor Caligula, that began to be part of the natural uh, course of civic life to offer sacrifice and say, Caesar is Lord. As a Christian, you refuse to do that. You say, Jesus is Lord. I owe no other Lord but Jesus. So Peter were writing to Christians a manual for living in a world that is not our home. How to get through the world to live a godly life. And he talks about the, the, the central portion of Peter as he's talking on themes such as suffering, as being strangers, as being exiles. He takes a strange approach to it. He says, God wants you to live a life of submission. Submission. We're not talking about surrender, just giving up, throwing your hands up and becoming a doormat for anyone who crosses your path. The biblical view of submission is that you make a choice to put the welfare of others before yourself. Next week, we look at submission in the context of the family. Mutual submission, everyone putting 
the others before themselves. We understand that. But Peter says this is an aspect of the Christian life we all need to get hold of. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Peter says it begins with submission to God himself. I surrender all. As we sing it, wonderful. We submit to God. Not only that, but our flesh, our carnal old nature, the us that was us before we knew Jesus, the flesh we still have with us, the fallen human nature. But Peter says, submit the flesh and its sinful desires to the Spirit of God. We don't walk in the flesh. We want to walk by the Spirit. Live out the love and grace of Jesus in this dark and hurting world. Well, when it comes to governing authorities, even unjust, even wicked or sinful governing authorities, Peter says, be the best citizen you can. When it doesn't conflict with your uh, practice and your teaching directly from the Word of God, be the best citizen you can. Be, uh, be a wonderful addition to whatever country God plants you in. And in this case, it was a wicked persecuting Roman Empire and yet the Christians in the midst of that opposition still sought to do good to all men they still prayed for the emperor that God would bless him and give him wisdom and direction the same emperor that put Peter to death the same emperor that put Paul to death and these men didn't fight they 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 went through proper legal channels but they never were rebels they never rebelled against the government they always taught that you should put your neighbors your community first if it doesn't conflict with your christian practice it was amazing to see and now he's moved this week from that theme of submission to something that is so foreign to us but was so common to the world that peter lived in he's talking to the servant class which was probably at this point the majority of the christians who read his book were not rich they were not the elite they did not oversee large households they were not servants the elite they had servants peter's re writing primarily to those who were servants it's not a bad name servants when i picture household servants sort of like the old bbc program upstairs downstairs or the much more recent uh period soap opera downton abbey you know peter's not writing to the 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 rich people upstairs he's writing to the people downstairs the maids and the cooks and the butlers we think of the household servants and in some ways, that's the closest picture in modern experience to the people Peter was writing to. But the cold, hard facts is that these people were not free. They were owned as slaves. They had lost their civic status to the point that they were seen as property. This is Rome. This is Rome. We can't do anything about it. This is history. In ancient history, as far as we can read about in other cultures and other times, how humans functioned, every ancient civilization practiced human slavery. Everyone. It's hard to believe. The Near East, we see it reflected in the Old Testament. It was part of life. It's never pointed out as something that is, that is something to be rebelled against or gotten rid of because it was the fabric of the ancient world. It's never something, no matter what some people will tell you, it's never condoned in Scripture. 
It's dealt with openly and honestly as many of the people in Scripture, many godly people, find themselves through various circumstances in that situation. They were slaves themselves. They were owned. Their freedom was limited. Their physical, political freedom. Their economic freedom. But the godly people were set free spiritually. They had a freedom that even the elite, the owners of slaves, could only wonder at. And so Peter is writing to slaves, to servants. And remember, that is a large portion. In a city like Rome, there's always debate over how many of the people of Rome were slaves. You know, it's at least half. Minimum one-third of every person. One out of three people you met on the street were slaves of some sort. Very likely, half of the people you met would be slaves. In some eras of Rome, two-thirds of the people were slaves. In the ancient world, there weren't that many slaves owned in households. Most households, even wealthy people, had one or two servants. We often overlook that. For instance, when, uh, when we see Jacob take his wife and his second wife, there's Rachel and Leah, but then they're maidservants. When we hear maidservants, we think of someone you hire to be a maid. Those maidservants were owned by the household. They were part of the household itself. The servants were owned and seen as part of these ancient households. We think of Egypt. Was that a great slave society? Did it slaves and slave drivers build the pyramids? Best archaeological evidence says no. The pyramids were likely built by the farmers. The farmers rented or leased their land from the pharaoh. The pharaoh owned every inch of the land of Egypt. And so to work that land, for instance, you would owe the pharaoh one or two months of labor every year. It would be a time where you weren't in the fields tilling the fields or irrigating them as farmers. During the off-season, instead of going someplace nice for holidays, the farmers would go build a pyramid. You know, the pharaoh got his temples built, got his pyramids built, and you got to farm the pharaoh's land the rest of the year. Well, so it wasn't really a slave society. There were certainly slaves. We don't see slave societies, true slave societies, until, for instance, the Greeks. The Greeks were an enormous slave society. The majority of people, for instance, who lived in Athens would have been slaves, servants of one kind or another. The Romans, following culturally very close to the Greeks, were a slave society as well. Most people came into slavery in the early Roman times through the wars of expansion, the wars of Caesar Augustus. He took people as slaves and expanded his empire. So the slaves would have been the conquered people, the Britons, the Gauls, the Spanish Iberians, the Libyans, and so forth. They were then owned as, as, uh, as just uh, treasure and loot from the battle. They were now owned by the victors of the battle. But after that, those slaves, they grew old, they married, they had children. Then the children became the slaves. Most of the people that Peter would be writing to, believers in Christ, Christian slaves, were born that way. They were born into that terrible, restrictive life. And Peter writes to them encouraging words. This submission this life of putting others first for a servant had a very different flavor than it did for other people. It was unjust often. 
many of these servants, if they had an unjust master, their lives would be terrible. They could suffer greatly. And that was of great concern in the early church that members of the church would have unjust or cruel masters. And the church often did something about it, going as far as to pay the manumission price, which in that society you could buy people's freedom. Churches often saved up their money and bought the freedom of the members in the church that had the cruelest of masters. But Peter says this suffering... Not only is it part of living in this broken, hurting world, but God doesn't waste anything. Suffering brings about some of our richest experiences with God Himself. As Scripture reveals, we often grow only in the face of opposition or suffering. I have a quote from Oswald Chambers, who was a a wonderful Bible teacher. He was the principal and primary teacher of a, a Bible school in London, until the First World War broke out. And then he went to Egypt as the chaplain. In the Egypt, the YMCA was basically an alternative to the bars and brothels of Cairo. They tried to keep the soldiers out of those places to keep them healthy and occupied before they could go into battle and very likely lose their lives. But Oswald Chambers, when he came to Cairo, he canceled the concerts He canceled the silent movies that the YMCA was showing and he replaced it with Bible teaching. Now the leaders of the YMCA were upset with him. But very quickly, or in the past, the movies were sparsely attended. His teaching of the Bible, you couldn't fit enough people in the area. They became hugely, hugely popular. As these men, especially the New Zealand and Australian soldiers who very soon after lost their lives fighting in Turkey and Gallipoli, they went into battle with the teaching they had just previously received from Oswald Chambers. And as so many people did, he himself gave his life in this war. There was a hospital. He began to feel poorly. The doctor says, Dr. Chambers, you've got appendicitis. We need to operate quickly. And he kept putting it off because the beds were needed for the wounded. Other people need the beds more than him. And he always put others before himself. Well, of course, the appendix went septic and burst. And he later died of a a, uh, pulmonary hemorrhage uh, after receiving a terrible infection of of his appendix after they got it out, but not in time. Oswald Chambers, his teaching was later recorded and put together by his widow into numerous books, including the most popular devotional, 365-day devotional book ever written in English, My Utmost for His Highest, because that was a theme of Oswald Chambers' life, to give everything you had for the glory of God. When it came to suffering, he didn't turn his back on it. He didn't run from it. Here's what he said about it. When God gets us alone through suffering, heartbreak, temptation, disappointment, sickness, or by thwarted desires, a broken friendship, when He gets us absolutely alone and we are totally speechless, unable to ask even one question, then He begins to teach us. Friends, all too often we are so distracted. It takes something like suffering, difficulty, and hardship to get our attention. And then God can teach us. This morning's message is called, To This You Were Called. 
to this you were called. Peter puts that so beautifully. What are we called to? We're called to be servants. Nobody understood service and servanthood like the slaves of the ancient world. They knew their masters. Many of them, given the opportunity for freedom, chose to remain lifelong servants of the masters of the ancient Near East because there is no social safety net to have meals and housing and work and a family, a large extended family to care for you, many of them found their place through servanthood. Slavery in our thinking is the terrible slavery of the last couple centuries. It reached its epitome of sinfulness and evilness and the slavery practiced by the Spaniards and the Europeans as they conquered the Indian people of South America. Of the, uh, of the Europeans as they, as they bought slaves from Africa from their fellow Africans who captured them and sold them as property. That was called chattel slavery. They were treated inhumanely. They were not seen as people, but animals of labor. They were treated entirely as other, as non-human. In the ancient world, slaves could often own property, take wives, hold high public positions. It was a little bit different. I'm not an apologist for slavery. Those great slave societies so limited the possibilities of the human spirit. And yet, that was the world that the New Testament began in. That was, in many places, the majority of the believers had masters other than the king of kings, God himself, that they needed to answer to. So in Peter, teaching submission and putting others first, as he comes to this passage... That's the context that it's set in. First, Peter says how to practice godly service in the model of Jesus, godly service in an ungodly world. That's what he's talking about. Those Roman servants, they were ubiquitous. They were everywhere. Rich people didn't even notice them. They took them for granted, but the majority of people lived in some form of servitude. They had their niche in the world carved out for them. It wasn't their choice. They didn't have all roads open to them. As we often say, for instance, at a high school graduation, it's all up to you. The world is your oyster. Any direction is yours to take. Choose wisely. The people of this time did not often have that choice. So now we come to Peter's encouragement of submission to servanthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Peter writes, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Peter's telling people who are in that position of servanthood, Give better than you receive. As citizens of a country, give better than you receive. As servants, give better than you receive. As husbands and wives, seek to give better than you receive. Give everything. And do it for God's sake. Because that's what Peter says here. I don't think it's a really a proper translation when we read, for instance, slaves submit to your masters with all respect. In this passage, it seems that phrase, with all respect, is aimed at those masters, many of them who 
deserve a level of respect, but not all respect. In fact, that's not what the Greek text even says. That word is phobos, like phobia. It's fear. That is with all fear. And the fear in this passage is directly linked to the verse before it. Honor God. I honor the king rather, but fear God. Love the brothers. Honor the king, but only fear God. This again is telling us to submit yourself to your masters for the sake of God, out of reverence for God himself. Modern day people, we tell them, be the best employee you can be. If you have employees, be the best employer you can be. Give better than you get out of reverence for God because we all ultimately serve God alone. Closer to home, what we can see here on earth with our eyes, it seems we serve one another, but ultimately we are working for our Lord. We're working for Him. And we seek to give better than we receive. Paul writes, for instance, to, to servants. He writes and touches on servanthood and people who are, who are owned by others, who are slaves, but are in the church in many different passages. Look, for instance, what he writes in the letters to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 20. Paul writes this. He says, each one... Each one should remain in the situation he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Like, who were you when you came to Christ by faith? He says, don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can, gain your freedom. Do so. As they often did, they saved up their money. Some chose not to buy their freedom. But Paul says, if at all possible, become free. Verse 22. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him to. Paul's saying, we're not trying to overthrow Roman society. Christians, they never openly oppose slavery. Don't get me wrong. As Paul says here, freedom is preferable. But by their example, by living a life of grace, they conquered the unconquerable Roman Empire. Within two and a half centuries, the emperor, the Roman emperor himself, baptized on his deathbed, Emperor Constantine, with a believing mother, issued an edict of tolerance that Christianity was tolerated and eventually, for all intents and purposes, it became the faith of the Roman Empire. How did that happen? These Christians, not only did they not burn cities down, but they didn't rise up in rebellion, but their example and their faith. They lived for God and if called on, they died for God in the arenas, torn asunder by wild animals. Their faith and their life testified to Jesus. And they broke the hearts of the Roman Empire. And it became eventually, for all intents and purposes, a Christian empire. Well, don't get me started on the history of that. Why does Paul say, if you're free, don't now become slaves of men? Because in the early church in Corinth, it was a practice to sell yourself into slavery. 
believe it or not. We know this because just a few decades after Peter and Paul wrote these letters, that we have a letter from Clement, the lead churchman in Rome. Clement wrote in the letter, First Clement, to the Corinthian church. Chapter 55, Clement says, You Christians, quit selling yourselves as slaves. Now, that sounds crazy to us. But remember, this isn't chattel slavery where you're beaten by masters, where you could be killed. Slaves had, servants had their lives protected. In Hebrew culture, you couldn't even harm a servant, much less kill them. These people in Hebrew culture, if they were bound in servitude, every six or seven years, you had to set them free. They weren't owned. It was more or less you leased yourself to another person, full-time service for a period of time. Well, in Rome, do you, I mean, in Corinth, you know what they did? And it makes a certain amount of sense. As I mentioned, if we have servants here among us, and we all know that one of us, they have a terrible master. They treat them cruelly. They blame them for everything. Their life is a living nightmare. Someone else in the congregation would say, I'm going to go into service. I'm going to sell myself into servitude because you would receive a big payout when you did that. What you did with the money was up to you. You could invest it. You could keep it. You could spend it. What they would do, they would sell themselves into slavery and they would buy the other member of their congregation out of slavery who had a cruel master. They were willing to do that for their love for one another. Clement told him, we have enough slaves in the congregation. Don't go selling yourself for somebody else. There's got to be another way. We can take love offerings. We can save up. We don't need any more of you to be in this kind of servitude. Why? It limits your choices. You can't be a missionary on the road for Christ if you have to be in a Roman household playing a certain role. That's amazing to me that people would do that. Paul writes to Titus. A few years ago, we went through the book of Titus. Paul writes to Titus to talk to his church there. And it was a rough and tumble church. He told them in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Can you believe it? We're to live in such a way, even as servants, that it's an evangelistic witness. You're to be the best servant you can be, that your master will see Christ in you and become a fellow believer with you. Gaining your freedom that way. Seeing your master set free. Wherever we are in life, good situation, hard situation, God's people are called to use it for God's glory. And your service as a witness to your faith in God. Now that sounds crazy to us. Almost outlandish that you could make something so good from a bad situation. But have we forgotten one of the most godly, most amazing individuals in all of scripture the patriarch joseph the spoiled son of a rich rancher who is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers joseph the slave he was so godly so good so loyal wherever he was that god blessed him and he rose 
to be in all intents and purposes, not in name but in power, the Pharaoh of Egypt himself. As the vizier, he controlled everything in that country. And it began where it began, Joseph the slave. We read, for instance, in Genesis chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Now he went from being free through unjust circumstances to being a slave. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Suffering unjust circumstances, Joseph then becomes Joseph, the slave imprisoned. He was such a good prisoner that he wound up being put in charge of the whole prison by the warden himself. He was freed from prison through interpreting dreams and the Pharaoh puts him in charge of the nation itself. There is no limitation to what God can do through godly service in an ungodly world. Friends, the principles from this are clear. It speaks to us as working people. Wherever we find ourselves, we are used to the fact that today, if something doesn't suit you at work, quit. Find another job. Quit. Go on unemployment. Go on ENI. EI, whatever. Serb. What wonderful days those were. Didn't have to work. Government gave me money. Then the government says, we want that money back. Oh, there's a catch to everything. Wherever we find ourselves, though, we're to be the best we can to give better than we receive. Because these are hard lessons to people in servitude, some of them born in servitude, but to you and I today, free people working in a Western democracy, the principles are still true. We're to be faithful. We're to be loyal. We're to be honest. We're to be hardworking. Paul puts it so well in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Isn't that amazing? We take that to heart as people who are employees and encouragement to our employers. But if I'd begun two verses earlier, that passage is addressed to slaves. Work at it with all your heart because you are serving Jesus. Whatever you do, school teacher, farmer, nurse, whatever you do, you are working for Jesus. Work that way. Give it all you have and let it be a witness and a blessing to this hurting world around us. Well, as Peter says, this is still a difficult, godless world. And many of the people, as well as they try to give better than they receive, there is still great suffering in this life. So Peter encourages us that we're not alone in this, that we walk in the steps of the suffering servant. We're walking in Jesus' steps. He literally uses the phrase, put your feet in Jesus' footprints. That's what the Greek word means. It's as if somebody has gone ahead of you through a minefield and you see their footprints and you don't want to put a single foot astray. Walk in His steps. Walk in Jesus' steps. Jesus, a man of sorrow, well acquainted with suffering. 
Peter continues and teaches that important lesson in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He's talking to servants, some of who he says, if you're suffering, make sure you suffer for doing good, that it is unjust. Because he writes in verse 20, but how is it to your credit if you receive a, meet, a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. Your feet in Jesus' footprints. Jesus who was unjustly accused, who was scourged, who was crucified. Jesus who didn't defend Himself, though He could have called 10,000 angels. Jesus who endured suffering for our sake. When we suffer, we endure it for God's sake. Because He's our Lord. We're following in Jesus' steps. And we do it for the sake of others. We're following Jesus' example. Now remember who's writing this. We often lose focus that this is Peter, the old fisherman, writing this letter. This is Peter who always put his foot in his mouth. This is Peter who was first to launch out. Peter who got out of the boat and walked on water. Peter who proclaimed Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter needed to learn this lesson. Because when it came to Jesus seeking to live a life, a godly life, and suffering for it, Peter wanted no part of it. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16? Look what it says, beginning in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Hard teaching, suffering and death of their beloved master. Peter was having no part of it. (laughs) Talk about somebody setting Jesus straight. Peter took that upon himself. Set the Son of God, creator of heaven and earth, straight. Peter was willing to try. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. (laughs) That's where Peter was still living his life, like us in our natural spirit. Boy, if that boss is unjust to me, I'll get my payback. When he's not around, I'll help to myself to the company funds or this or that. We're always trying to justify or defend or get over on somebody else, especially when we're in an employment situation. Not Peter. Peter was having no part of Jesus saying that he was going to be the suffering servant. Oh, no. But he had to learn. Jesus was not willing to defend himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter pulls the sword tries to cut off the high priest servant's head, misses, chops off his ear. Jesus said, put your sword away, Peter. This is not how we face this situation. And Jesus healed the servant. Things of men rather than things of God. Jesus tells Peter, you have to see this God's way, not man's way. In fact, Jesus says, if you're going to be my servants and followers, 
You have to follow me. And part of that is not just to wear a little cross around your neck, but to bear a cross. Mark chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Take up your cross. Are you willing to wear the cross? Or for Jesus' sake to bear the cross? Well, friends, as we remember Jesus this morning, we come to the end of our service where we share the cup and the bread. It reminds us of Jesus. And that's exactly in these difficult situations for the early Christians what Peter was calling the Christians to do. We're going to do things a little bit different today. In just a moment, we'll begin to open the fellowship cup and have the elements available to us. But before we do that, Peter closes this section writing to those in servanthood by giving us three pictures of Jesus. Jesus, our living example perfect life follow his example jesus in life an example jesus in death your savior jesus today in heaven the shepherd of your souls who calls you his sheep to himself as we remember jesus let's do something different if you're able to physically i'd invite you at this point to stand with me and we're going to read this passage from peter his encouragement to remember jesus from the screen together so let's stand together as we read the lord's word today and those of you at home we're making this scripture full screen so that we encourage you wherever you're at today with god's family here today to read this passage and remember jesus let's read together first peter 2 22 to 25 reading together he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him he did not retaliate when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless to us today the reading of His Word. You may be seated. I'd invite you to Remove first the wafer as you peel back the cellophane. And as we do so, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul to that incredible church in Corinth, a church that caused him endless headaches because of their immaturity and their sin, but a church that had to be commanded years later not to give up their freedom for the sake of the love they had for their fellow Christians. They grew in Christ. Part of that was that they remembered Jesus. Part of that was the Lord's table, the Lord's supper that Jesus invites you to today. Paul writes to the church, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For, whoever, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread, friends, reminds us of Jesus' body given freely to the cross for you. He could have called 10,000 angels, but out of his love for you, he died on the cross. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. The Apostle Paul writes that in the same way after supper, Jesus took the cup. Carefully peel back the foil as we share together the cup, the fruit of the vine, which recalls to our hearts and minds the blood of Jesus shed for the cleansing of our sin. As this morning we remember Jesus, we remember that Jesus, after supper, took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Amen. Friends, I'd invite you to stand together with me as we're dismissed from this place of worship, of attending to God's Word, to your places of ministry, wherever God has planted you to be His servant. Let's stand together and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus as we remember our precious Savior. Lord, He was a man who gave His life not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many Father, today we rejoice that we count ourselves among the many who have experienced freedom, freedom through our faith in Jesus. But Lord, as Peter wrote to the early church, he writes to us today, as your living word speaks to us by your Holy Spirit, we are set free by our faith in Christ. We are free from sin and death. But in turn, the love of Jesus that dwells in our hearts through your Spirit compels us to serve with the grace of God those around us. Lord, our brothers and sisters in the past, some of them even served as slaves in Roman households in terrible, unjust situations. And yet, as Joseph the patriarch did, they always gave better than they received and you blessed them for it. Today, Father, wherever we are planted, whatever we do for work, our relationships, Lord, teach us to walk in Jesus' steps to serve as He served. Lord, we thank You for this morning. Bless us as we go from this place to the ministry that waits us. We ask it all in Jesus' strong name. Amen. God bless you and keep you.